This is episode 146 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing the 2016 Annual Enrichment Conference movement. This is session three with James Gleason. See, for years I thought I was just a member and didn't have voting privileges, uh, but I realized that I alone had the responsibility of caring for what God had given me. Uh, something really weird happened on the way to 50. I gained 50 pounds. And I don't know where it came from. I kept looking on my back. It wasn't on my back. I kept looking around, and eventually I realized I couldn't see my shoes. I was looking down the wrong place. And um, year after year, I just enjoyed the pleasure of food. And, uh, and one day I realized um, I wasn't who I thought I was. It didn't happen overnight. My stomach slowly grew year after year. My waist expanded. My face filled out. Um, If I really want to embarrass myself, I'll look at my Costco membership card because on the back of it is a photo of me, and I look like one of those puffer fish, except I wasn't spiky. Uh, The problem is um, I love food. I really do. And uh, a number of years ago, I discovered it's not just that I love food, I love eating food. (laughs) That's really the best part about it. Um, Because there's something in food that satisfies me. And a few years ago, about three years ago, I discovered that I needed to start watching what I was eating. I started to get, you know, a little conscious about that. I was approaching 50. Uh, My wife and I have three sons. They're this year, they're 10, 12, and 14. I thought I I would really like to see them graduate. That would be good and healthy. Um, So I started running. Fat men can run, that's true, I I did. And uh, I discovered that uh, running was okay, except that I got more hungry, and so I ate more food, uh, which wasn't a good thing. And I had to face the heart problem that I had, and it it took a lot for me to admit this, uh, but food was an idol to me. There was something about food that provided something for me And I was running to food. As Paul says, some people consider their stomach their God. And I came face to face with the fact that I didn't eat because I was hungry. I ate because I was nervous. I ate because I had pressure. I ate because I had responsibility. I ate because I didn't know what to do sometimes. And I just ate because I enjoyed the comfort that food brought me when I ate. I thank God there is not a Cracker Barrel in Oregon, or it would have been a lot more than 50 pounds that I gained. I loved the comfort that food provided for me. And once I really figured out my real problem, that was a heart problem, it was really an idol issue, I began to work on that. I began to get real serious about it. And that's when I started losing weight. And I got on a pretty strict diet and regiment, and I worked on things, and the worst thing that happened, I started counting calories. Boy, I discovered I was a glutton when I started counting calories. The last thing you want to do in a restaurant is ask for the calorie count of anything. I remember calling my wife, and I said, I really want to eat a salad here. This was at IHOP. But it's 1,500 calories, and the bacon cheeseburger is 875. I'm going with the bacon, and I enjoyed it a lot more. But I discovered that as I set a limit to the amount of food that I ate, and then as I worked on running, um, I discovered it's really actually simple. 
And since then, I've lost 30 pounds. I still have more to go. And I hope that the, whatever I end up with is not an idol just as much as food might be. But I discovered this is really simple, and it's just, it's just simple. Um, if you consume more energy than you expend, if you consume more energy than you expend, you gain weight. There's no, it's not even rocket science. But if you expend more energy than you consume, you lose weight. And that's what I've had to do. My wife and I give ourselves the wonderful romantic gifts at Christmas of these stupid little things, these little Fitbits that tell me everything about myself, including the sleep that I'm not getting. They tell me everything about how many stairs and how many calories and all that. And I start writing all, all my food down. I discovered that there's something within me that feels good eating what I like eating because it's comfortable for me. And I've discovered that I hate getting up in the morning and running. I really do. My wife and I packed her gear. We, we saw you out there this morning. Good job. Yours was a prayer walk. Mine was a stress run. We went out there and did four miles, and I praise God it wasn't raining because I would have been a whiny little brat, you know, about it. But I've discovered that if I am going to become a healthy person physically, and not just physically, but mentally, and I even believe spiritually, that I have to move out of the comfort of what my body craves and move into something that's really about health. And that's about, for me, it's about mission. I think the same thing is true of our churches. Having been a pastor for a number of years and walked alongside a lot of other pastors, I think there's something within our churches that gravitates to comfort. I mean, it's just what we want, right? We, we got to be honest about that. Just as I'm honest with, I love bacon. I really do. I have to be honest that as a church goer, I like certain songs. I really do. And I don't like others. And I want the worship leader to lead me in the songs that I like. How selfish is that, right? But we're all in that situation. I like certain kinds of preaching. I like certain kind of church activities, potlucks being one of them. Um, I, I like a lot of things, and I, I naturally want them to be about me. But I discovered just as in eating that if I focus on what I want, I might not get what I need. I have the privilege of going to East Africa uh, once or twice a year. I speak for a week or two and, and uh, train pastors, and it's a blast to go over there and head into rural areas and spend a week with uh, some men that just love God but have never been to Bible college, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but when I come home, I, this, is, this always is the case. I usually, you know, get picked up by my family. I ride the Max uh, back across Portland to my church there where my car is parked. And I get into my car, and I like my car. It has air conditioning. It has heaters. In fact, my car, talk about materialism, it has fancy butt warmers. It really does. And I can turn a dial, and my seat heats up. I like that. I'm driving home, and I, I see my house. We live out in the country, surrounded by 100 acres, and uh, thankfully, we don't have to care for that 100 acres. A farmer does, and we get to enjoy it growing. Um, but I, I, I look at my house, and I, I like my house, love my family. I like hot water in showers. Can I get it? Amen. I just like that. The thought of a bucket of cold water, I will go for a week or two to train pastors for that, but I don't like it. I complain. I'm a wimp when it comes to that. I like comfort. I just like to be comfortable. Don't you? 
That's why we're here. We, we, we look at the seats. They're soft and cushy. If we had old wooden pews with the spiky little things that we used to have, you know, those little splinters, we would, we would complain about that. We wouldn't pay the convention center the money we pay them. We would do something that's comfortable. That's just the reality of all of us, and we have to face that. That's the truth of us. And as pastors, we like comfort. And you know that our people, they like comfort. That's the natural gravity. But somewhere in the midst of all that, Jesus shows up and he says, go and make disciples and baptize those disciples and train those disciples. And really, to be honest, there's not a whole lot that's easy about that. There's not a whole lot that's comfortable about that unless we somehow change our church practice and theology and make it really easy. And in doing so, probably don't make the disciples that Jesus has called us to make. You know, if I did only what my body would do straight up, my wife will testify, I would eat pizza and sit and watch TV. And I would do that. You know, we have this little thing, we kind of fight over the easy chair. You know, we're not materialistic, we don't have two of them. We only have one, you know? And if I get up at five to do my devotions, I get it, you know? Sorry for her, sucker, you know? You could sit on the couch, you know? I was up first. I like that. But there's nothing in that easy chair that speaks about faith. It's just about comfort. It gets harder and harder the older I get. I discovered this. I was 30. I left Boise. I was a youth pastor in Boise for five years. I'd been at... Western Baptist College before that, uh, Corbin. And I went to Boise, and I loved it, and it was great. And I moved here to go to school and get into ministry in a different location so I could go to seminary. And uh, I discovered that all the driving back and forth, I gained like 10 pounds. Somehow Taco Bell does that. I just didn't understand, sitting in a car, driving all those miles. And I realized that I had turned 30, and, and something changed. My metabolism had changed. And then I turned 40, and it's like a clock. My metabolism slowed down even more. And I last year turned 50, and it happened again. And there's just something normal and natural. The older we get, the harder it is to lose weight. I don't have to eat as much food as I used to. I think even in churches, the older we get, the harder it is to stay on mission. The more we like comfort. It's, it almost seems like we have to work that much harder to stay focused because we just get complacent. We get normal. We develop our programs. We develop the things that we like to do. We're leaders, let's be honest. We build things around what we like. Let's just be truthful here. And we do that, and we exist in that more than a decade, and pretty soon it gets normal, and we like it that way. And things begin to slow down, and we don't even notice we're slowing down with the gospel and with discipleship. And you and I know it, but Jesus didn't come and die on a cross so we could create safe and comfortable places for Christians to gather and sing about the cross he died on. He came and died on a cross so we could die to ourselves and go out into a world that needs the message of that cross because the world is dying. And when the church is on mission. It's the most beautiful thing because we're out creating relational bridges. We're building relationships with people that are lost, that are hurting and broken. We have opportunities to experience real and relevant ways of just living our lives in a community that doesn't know about Christ. And we get to share the transforming power of the gospel. And none of that is easy for us. 
But I believe the gospel is most apparent when we're giving our lives away, when we follow the example of Jesus. If we say we want to live by faith, we have to get out of the easy chair of comfort. And faith is only really exhibited when we're out hanging on that cliff, on that edge there. And that is not a place I like to be. It's a place we all have to be if we're going to be on mission. I like what John Ortberg wisely wrote. He said, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. The problem is I like the safety of the boat. I really do. It's that much easier to stay in the boat. For me, as a pastor, it all comes down to the posture in our community. I want to share some uh, just some ways, and God's blessed us with opportunities as a church to serve our community and to reach a lot of people for Christ with the gospel. Um, but it comes down to uh, just a few things. And a number of years ago, I was preaching through Acts, and it was a beautiful book. I love it, you know, the faith of the church and what's going on. And so I get to Acts chapter 2, and I'm talking to our congregation about the fact that Peter is in Jerusalem talking to his own people, and they all know everything. They got the Bible memorized. They do. They all know it. And so he preaches to Jewish people as a Jewish pastor would about Jewish things, and they all got it. And then by the time we got to Acts 17, I said, here's Paul in Athens. He's a Jewish rabbi too, but he's, he's like a Gentile now preaching to Gentiles. And so it's a totally different message. And I said, you know, as church people, we have to wake up and realize we're not in Jerusalem anymore, speaking to people in Jerusalem. We're in Athens preaching to people that don't even understand. Well, then, and preparing for preaching through Daniel this year, I realized I was wrong. I had to stand up. I've done this a few times. I had to apologize. I said, I was wrong. For years, I've thought we're in Athens speaking to people that are critical thinkers that you could have a great argument with and end up with great conversations. And pouring myself into the book of Daniel, I realized uh, we're not in Athens anymore. We're in Babylon. And we're believers in Babylon. And we're exiled to a place that's not our home. And now we have to figure out how to live in the midst of all that. Um, I appreciate Tim Keller and his work in uh, Manhattan and New York and things like that. And I heard him speak about this, uh, and, and this is kind of my summary of what he said, that when God took the people out of Jerusalem in 586 BC, when the Babylonians conquered and Nebuchadnezzar took the land, he exported them to Babylon, and the tension was high. What are they going to do? Are they going to move into Babylon and become Babylonians? Because that's what the Babylonians wanted. That's, that's what they did. Everywhere they went, they conquered people. They took the best and the brightest, and they brought them into their culture, and they morphed them into Babylonians, and Babylon was better because of it. And that's what a lot of people wanted to do. They had long ago given up on God. And yet, then there was this other group of people that said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to withdraw by the river, and we want to we create our own subculture, our own community, and in doing so, we will stay pure, and we will stay religious. And as I heard him speak about that, I thought, that's really the tension that you and I face. We look around us, and we can see all kinds of churches doing things that don't really reflect the gospel anymore. And that seems harsh, and that seems critical, but when you drop the offense of the cross, what do you have? You have a lot of people that love to get together, right, and do things in the name of God, but is God really in the middle of that? And I grew up in a church culture that completely withdrew from their community 
because we were holier than thou, and we were better, and we, we loved that. We knew that we were better, and we had rules and lists, and we were legalistic, and we were separatistic, and we were proud of the fact that we didn't even know lost people, but we had the gospel, and somehow we have to figure out a new way, a third way, and what we see in the book of Jeremiah is this way, Jeremiah 29, 4 to 7. Uh, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. And as I was sharing and preaching this before we got to Daniel, I said, you know, the, the thing is, as a congregation for us, this is going to be the challenge. How do we not assimilate into our culture so much that nobody really knows what Jesus looks like? They know what a Christian is, but they don't really know what Jesus is. But on the other hand, how do we not separate so far away from our culture that they never get a chance to see Jesus living in us? And so we started talking about that. We started working on that. And we started addressing some of the, the fears that we have as congregations, as people, that, that what, what if, how will this look? What will other people think of us? What will other churches think of us? What will our family members think of us? But most importantly, what will Jesus think of us? So we started walking that journey. We started wrestling with some of the things. And the words that popped out was this idea of peace, that Jesus, you know, for us at least, as we look at that passage and look what Jeremiah wrote from the Lord of Heaven's armies into this, that we would work for peace, that we would, we would be a people of peace, that we would engage our culture in a way that is actually beautiful, that we would find places of strife and find places of difference and find places of intense disagreement, and we would just move into that. And we would become peacemakers, as Jesus said. As, as the Old Testament word, shalom, that there would be a fullness, there would be a completeness, because God's people showed up into a community. What would that look like? Uh, prosperity. I live in Hillsborough. It's one of the most prosperous cities in Oregon. It's one of the economic drivers of our state, for the last five or six years, I've, I've been a part of a, a committee with their city. They approached me and said, would you like to be on a committee? I was like, no, thanks. I've done the church thing. I don't like committees. And um, they said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're, we're, we're envisioning the future. I go, I'll sign up for that. So, you know, three or four times a year we get together. And so I know demographics of our community. I know stats, and we're involved in planning and working things out. And, you know, some people are building dog parks, and we're working on, you know, low-income housing over here, you know? Uh, so we're working on these things. And, and I began to realize that I live in the most prosperous city in Oregon. And, and because of the high tech in that sector, I live in prosperity. And so, and, and, and it's kind of weird because I didn't even have to pray for it, you know? The computer chips are just being built down the street, you know? And, and there's, a, there's a blessing with prosperity, God says, because then you're going to prosper. And I don't want to prosper materialistically, but I want to prosper because guess what? God brings all sorts of people into our city, and we don't even have to try to reach them. They live right next door to us, and we just go out our doorsteps to our neighbors. 
We have people from all over the world that show up in our community. I was talking to a friend today that when we moved into Arenco Station, this is area of Hillsborough that used to be just Oregon's nursery company, it's now becoming this super dense community that's supposed to mirror the urban Portland experience right there. And I looked around, and from 2007, we moved there to now, I look around, and everything's different. There are more East Asians that live in our community, Middle Easterners that live in our community. And I thought, what am I going to do? But God's brought them here because of the prosperity. And then to pray, that word pray, and we, we ask ourselves, when was the last time we actually prayed for our city, for our community, for our neighborhoods, for the people that are there? And I think it's all about posture. I love the late Joe Aldrich's statement and his gentle persuasion. He says, this lost people aren't the enemy, they're the victim of the enemy. So we work in and amongst, and we look around, and we see brokenness and hurting, and, and we're as upset and angry as we imagine God would be, and so we engage in that. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. And, and that's actually kind of offensive because sheep are some of the dumbest animals. Some of you farmers know that. They're, uh, we have chickens, and I can't believe there's anything dumber than a chicken, but there are. They're called sheep, and uh, they're defenseless, and they're not even good at running, and that's all they can do to defend themselves. And yet Jesus says we're sheep being sent out into a community of wolves, but in doing so, be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Serpents were thought to be the most cunning and wise of the creatures. Paul says this in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, live wisely among those who are not believers, Live wisely among them and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive, attractive. What so that you will have the right response for everyone. So for us, everything in our church has been about our posture toward our local community. How will they see us as people that are for them or people that are against them? People that are walking side by side with them or a cloistered community that's safe in the comfort of our own churches? Followers of Jesus are to be out in the midst of the community that are out there, but in operating in such a way, Jesus called it doves, harmless and gentle and peaceful. I want to share a couple stories, and in doing so, I always hesitate to share some of these things because um, these really look good, um, and if you want, I'll share the bad stuff too. Um, but we just asked a question, how could we love our community? How could we love our neighborhood? And I was just brand new pastor in 1998, and I grabbed all the adults and all of our Sunday school classes, and I said, we're going to just do one class for the summer, and we're just going to start praying for our city, and we're going to figure out what we can do. And one old guy, Earl, said, well, you know, every, every Saturday, I drive by here to work on the landscaping, and I see all these people down at the school, at the elementary school, and their kids are playing soccer, and it's cold, and it's foggy, and it's rainy some days. I said, okay, Earl, what, what could we do? He goes, let's go give him coffee. Now, I knew Earl's coffee was the worst coffee in the world. It's like church coffee. It's made in the big percolator thing. And I go, well, let's give him real coffee because we want this to be a good image of Jesus, not your coffee, Earl. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. And he was offended, but he got over it. And so we went and bought real coffee, and we served donuts, and it was super awkward for us. It was weird. We're setting up tables, and... And, and we had little stickers on the cup, you know, a cup of hot chocolate in Jesus' name, which was really dumb. But you know what? That's, what we, that's the only thing we could do, you know? 
And people would come up and, you know, how much is it? Well, it's free and we'd give it away. And we went away and we'd go, wow, okay, that's a good attempt and we could do that. What we didn't know is that um, people started showing up to our church because of that. They wanted to know who are those really weird people giving out hot chocolate and giving away donuts. And then we uh, were at the Tuesday market. We have this beautiful set of markets, Tuesday market, Saturday market, things like that. And our family, you know, get, they get there and everybody hangs out and music and all kinds of things. And I looked around one, one Tuesday market and I thought, what could we do to serve these people? So I grabbed one of my friends and he was a pastor at the time. And I was like, well, we could give him free water or coffee. And, and we looked at that and that'd be really bad because people are selling water and coffee. So that would be offensive. And so we went to the leaders and we said, what could we do as a church to serve the Tuesday market? And we looked around and they looked around and we realized there's tons of kids hanging out everywhere. Moms and dads need a break. So we invented this silly thing called 30 Minutes of Freedom. We originally called it 60 Minutes of Freedom, but we, we really, we tried it once. It was not freedom. It was bondage. Um, and so we set up our children's ministry, all of our stuff. We just put it in a trailer. Somebody loaned us a trailer, set up some little fences, and we created a safe spot in the middle of everything where everybody could see us and put up a sign and said, 30 Minutes of Freedom. And what was so fun about that was that we always seated it with our kids, so it looked great and everything like that. Um, but then parents would come up, and, and they would ask, what are you doing? Well, we're watching kids for free. It's like, well, what do you get out of that? <laughs> it's like, uh, we just want you to have a good time and to have a little date. Parents would stand at the edge, and then the next week they'd get closer. Then they'd stand there with their kid, which was always the funnest because the kid wants to dive in, and the parent won't let him. And then the next week they came in. And so for me, the epitome of a win on this one was we're sitting there, my wife and I were some families and, and the band was stopped playing and they're doing a little announcement. They go, hey, don't forget, Sunrise Church is watching your kids, parents, so you can go get a beer. I'm like, well, that's not quite the way we designed it. <laughs> but if that's what you want to think, I guess that's okay. <laughs> Two of our ladies grew up in poverty and they grew up on assistance and they had churches that served them and they said, we want to start a food pantry. And so we just pulled out a closet and started a food pantry. We just started loving people and giving what we had away. One of the moms, their son and daughter, they're for their birthdays, they said, we don't want anything for their birthday. These, these, were, these were teenagers. We just want groceries so we can give them away. And all their friends filled up their dad's pickup truck with groceries and they gave them away. And since then, we, man, we serve hundreds of people a week. We partner with the Oregon Food Bank. We're purchasing a mobile trailer to start doing some of that to where our city can call on us to go serve people where they live and share the gospel that way. Um, one of the things we did that, um, unfortunately, we're most known for, because um, there's other things, but one of the gals from Prison Fellowship came and, and she said, hey, you realize that men and women coming out of prison are not welcome in church? And I said, I don't understand why. What's the problem? And go, well, there's this stigma. And I go, well, no, there isn't. She goes, yeah, there is. And I met a couple of them, and they said, we're not welcome in our church. And I thought, what's, what's the problem with this? What's, what's up? So I said, well, why don't we do this? And we started a, a service in the afternoon on Sundays for ex-prisoners and their families. And, you know, we started with like 12, and we had no clue what we were doing. We were stupid, you know. But we, we knew we had to protect ourselves, so we got the Department of Corrections involved. And they thought, you guys are people of faith. You don't have a clue. All you want to do is hug people. And we go, okay, well, educate us. And they taught us a lot. 
And so we learned a lot, and we started doing this in such a way, and then all of a sudden, we had a problem. Sex offenders started coming. And our problem was we didn't know how to care for these people. We didn't even know what we wanted these people. Because how do you, I mean, how do you do that? And so we went to the Department of Corrections, and we got a school on that, instructed on it, work with the local police, work with the restitution center, Washington County Jail. And they taught us how to love people in the name of Jesus. And it has not been easy, not, not, not for ex-prisoners and SOs, but for our community and our neighbors. And, and man, we've never had a problem in the 12 years we've done it, but every time something shows up and a TV crew walks in, I'm like, oh, please, Lord, just protect us. And he has um, a couple, maybe about a month ago, Coin6 emailed and said, hey, we'd like to do a story on your ex-prisoner service. I'm like, oh, please, can we just go away with this, you know? We met with the gal, and she said, do you know any sex offenders that could come? And I said, yeah, I got a really good friend that's an SO. And so we went down to Portland and sat down, and she was genuine. I couldn't believe it. For the first time, a TV reporter was really genuine. Apologies if you know anybody like that. But um, I'm serious, you know, when you're on camera, it's not usually a good thing. And she convinced us, and we sat down, and they came into the church and the office, and, and it was on Coin 6 a couple weeks ago. In fact, I think we've got it. If you, it's like four minutes if you want to watch this. Well, new now at 6, a local man designated a predatory sex offender shed some light on a community effort he says has now changed his life. It's been 11 years since a Hillsborough church started welcoming and embracing ex-prisoners. Is it helping to make our community safer, though? Our Amy Frazier is digging deeper into Light My Way. Your love never fails and never gives up. They are words Ben Sanders are you all has come to live by. This is our big uh, Light My Way. Every Sunday at the Light My Way dinner and service, You're welcome. Sunrise Church in Hillsborough opens its arms yeah, welcome. to men and women who are often shunned elsewhere. You safe for the service? People like Ben Sanders. If I was judged by what I was doing now and not my past, you wouldn't even know I was a sex offender. The Oregon Sex Offender Registry lists his targets as adult and elderly women. He has felony convictions in 1974 and 98 and a conviction for attempted sex abuse in 2009. On the registry, it says predator right. at the top. What do you say to that? Well, for a long time, I used to think I wasn't. I... Uh, then it came. Then I came to a point in my life where I knew I was, and now I'm at another point in my life where that was me, but that's not me now. What's your goal? And he says Sunrise Church has played a big role in that. Some churches are focused inward, and um, we're decided to focus outward. Eleven years ago, the church began serving the needs of ex-prisoners and their families. Some are under supervision. Some are registered sex offenders. They've all done things that we'd be ashamed of. If nobody else is gonna serve them, our heart is to go reach those people. Up to 150 people attend the Light My Way service. Some of those are from our uh, quote unquote regular church services. They love ex-prisoners. They love to serve. Others are from the restitution center, Washington County Corrections. Of course, not everyone feels comfortable with ex-convicts and sex offenders gathering here next to a school on Sundays. Over the years, the church has worked closely with Washington County Community Corrections, holding neighborhood meetings and increasing security. There's probably still some people that have concerns about Light My Way service, but 
Um, I think they're far fewer than they were, you know, back in the, you know, 10 years ago or so when it when it started. No one under 18 is allowed here during Light My Way. There's a volunteer security staff inside and outside the church. There hasn't been any crime that's been committed because of the ministry of our homeless shelter or Light My Way in our neighborhood. But church leaders and even corrections officials say they have seen Light My Way change lives. They're engaging people here that aren't otherwise really um, allowed those opportunities in the in the public um, and as a part of that engagement process becomes relationship building building rapport building trust and then you can expect change to start taking place and that's exactly what happens here church leaders feel it's helping to create a safer community because when people come into the light when they come into community they're less likely to reoffend. It's not something Washington County Community Corrections officially tracks for those attending, but they do see personal stories. I love you too. Ben Sanders is listed as a predatory sex offender. He tells us he's not the person he used to be. Do you agree with that? He's under your supervision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've known Ben for about 10 years and I would absolutely agree. He's he, That's one of those miracles that keeps yeah, us in this field and. and working with this group of people. Yeah, yeah. Ben is on the leadership team here and often volunteers. He's sober. He's completed sex offender treatment. He also got married. I feel like I'm worth something. He'll always be accountable to his past, but he says this has helped light the way to a better future. It's for everybody. Anybody's welcome. You know, if you want to come to this church and check it out, more than welcome. Amy Frazier, Coin6 News. You can watch the story again. Um, I, I've seen uh, Jesus change Ben's life. Uh, I, I married him, he and his wife, in my home. It's kind of cool. Couldn't have my kids there, of course. <laughs> Restrictions. Uh, but it was an amazing opportunity to see 35, 40 friends gather at my home and to be a part of that continual restoration in his life. Uh, when we started Light My Way, I had people uh, leave our church. And uh, one friend, Billy, uh, who I had led to Christ at Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> a couple years earlier, he said, I, I can't go to a church that welcomes those people. And I said, Billy, we welcomed you. And you were rough and you were difficult. But he goes, I just can't get over the things they did. And I said, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. They need Jesus too. Billy later came back a couple years later and uh, was proud that he had been a part of Sunrise. I think he forgot the part where he left. Um, a number of years ago, one of our gals who works for Parks and Rec, she came and said, hey, um, you know, 48% of Hillsborough students are on free and reduced lunch, which totally blew me away. There's no way. We're Hillsborough, right? We're a suburban church. We're a community. 48% is true. I said, well, what, what, what's the issue? She goes, well, these kids aren't getting lunches in the summer. I go, yeah, well, what can we do about that? She goes, well, the school, and she'd already done this. She, she checked it out. They will continue to provide meals because the federal government paid for this if we just go pick up the lunches that the school ladies provide and go deliver them. And so we started a program called The Outpost, and we've been doing that for uh, actually almost 10 years now. And we, we, just set, we just go, we send, we have an ambulance. It's kind of a weird story. Somebody gave us an ambulance. So we painted it up like 
Scooby-Doo mystery machine. It's the ministry machine, and it's kind of weird. Um, but we go pick up all these lunches, and we go take them to Shoot Park, and, um, you know, predominantly Hispanic kids show up, underprivileged children come in, and uh, we walk them through a program. We hand out Bibles. We share the gospel. We pray for people, and uh, we give meals to kids. And we knew we won because about three or four years into this, Governor Kulangoski showed up, and he gave an award and patted himself on the back for all his programs. And we thought, well, that's cool. So that's a good thing. If the governor can take credit, that's awesome. Um, in 2008, it snowed, and it really snowed. And a homeless guy died in the snow and exposure. It was in the paper. We looked at it and we wept. We thought nobody should die alone like that. So we said, we don't know what we're doing. We're going to open up our church. And so now we have a homeless shelter for 90 days. The city gives us a 90-day permit, uh, 91 this year because Elite Day. That was extra cool. Um, and um, they actually give us grants to pay for it. The city pays some of our bills to do this. And so we have a homeless shelter. We have up to 55 men and women that sleep in our church every night. We have two dozen churches that serve and help us because it's a lot of work. We give people a dinner. Usually about 75 people eat. And then we can only house 55, and then some go away. And then we give them breakfast, and they sleep on mats in Sunday school classrooms and kids' areas and things like that. And then we love on them, and we, we see every year, we see dozens of them come to Christ, get baptized. We served 331 homeless people this winter just because some people's hearts were broken. A number of years ago, we looked around and realized that 23% of Hillsborough is Hispanic, first-generation Hispanic, and we thought, we don't know what to do about that. I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm as white as it gets. And so we uh, contacted CB Northwest, Roy Libby. I don't know where you are, Roy, but thank you so much. And got us, there you go, buddy. And uh, got us hooked up with uh, Nelson Castro. Um, and uh, we partnered, and he ended up coming on staff. And we have a whole Hispanic congregation. And then he and one of our other pastors planted uh, a, another church in another community for us. And it was... Uh, Hispanic, no, I think English first and Hispanic later because the Hispanic service went a whole lot longer and the English were getting upset with not being able to get in in time or whatever. And so um, after about a year, we just said enough of this and we merged them together. And for about a year now, we've had a bilingual service and it's cool and it's weird um, and uh, it's fun and it's messy and it works some weekends and it doesn't work other weekends. But uh, we preach, whoever preaches, it's translated. Whoever leads worship, it's translated. And um, we love it. We really love it. Um, a couple years ago, one of our guys, he's a farmer, he said, hey, I'd like to build a garden up here. We had a whole area. Um, and we said, sure, that's great. So he gets his tractor up there. He's plowing up the dirt. And, and then the city calls us. We're like, great. Now we're in trouble. And they go, hey, what are you doing? Um, well, if we don't need a permit, that's the first thing we need to tell you for what we're doing. No, that's not what we're asking. What are you doing? Well, we want to build a, a garden for the community. He goes, well, I kid you not can the city come in and build it and pay for it? Is that okay? We're like, well, let me think about that for a minute. I'll pray. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And, and they even pay for the water. We bill the city for the water, for the garden. And they give us a check. It's just crazy. And now all the people from our community come in and we pray for them and we walk on the weekends. We're having church. We come out during break. People are hanging out, having their garden time, building community. 
couple years ago, I was in one of those city meetings, and I asked what I thought was an innocent question, and I asked this gal, Beth, I said, hey, Beth, um, if I wanted to get some people connected to a, a school to serve, who would I contact? She goes, well, we don't have anybody. I said, no, I don't think you understand. Like, who's in charge of knowing all of the volunteer needs at all of our schools in Hillsborough School District? She goes, we don't have anybody. I said, no, hold on. What I'm asking you is this. How do I get people connected to our schools? She goes, we don't have any mechanism for that. And I went home, and I, I kid you not, I cried that night. I thought, I would, can't imagine being a teacher at a public school with all the needs that they have. A, a principal of a public school, a, a counselor, a custodian. And so I, I emailed her and then the superintendent. We had coffee at Starbucks, and I said, hey, I have an idea. I want to stand up in front of my congregation this weekend and announce that we're going to hire two staff people that will work for the Hillsborough School District that will be paid by our church. Are you okay with that? It's like, you're my best friend now. <laughs> I said, okay. So I stood up there. I hadn't even talked to our elders yet. Bad idea. Um, but I stood up. I was too excited. And I stood up there. And, not that they were going to squash it, but they'd ask a lot of questions. And I stood up there and I said, hey, th- here's my heartbeat. And I had two ladies come up and say, we, we can't have full-time jobs. We'll split a job. And for the last three, going on four years now, they're the Hillsboro Public Volunteer Coordinators, and they coordinate all the needs. And this is so cool. When a need comes into a school, like a pregnant teen or like a family that needs groceries or whatever, they call the churches. They call our ministerial association, and our ministerial association sends that out in an email, and faster than you can think, the schools are being served. Uh, One of our... uh, Older churches in our community uh, was so excited, all the ladies, and, and, and they were like the youngest was 80 in this group, they, they, they got together and they put together a baby shower, all the supplies for one of the teen moms, and they went and delivered it to the school. All the ladies in that office wept that a church would serve someone like that. We've had so many opportunities to share the gospel. I meet with the superintendent about every six months. We have lunch, and I always say this. I said, Mike... We're not like crossing any lines here, separation of church and state, are we? He goes, no. But he knows what we're doing. He knows why we're doing it. It's not bait and switch. It's the love of Jesus poured out. Um, We were recently given um, a a very large gift from someone in our congregation. I had no idea how this kind of money. Now I know. And, um, And so it was massive. And I've never seen a check that big. And we were given a check in the fall by somebody else. And and I... My MO is we'll, we'll tithe on that. When somebody gives us a gift, a big gift, we tithe. So um, I was so excited and giddy that uh, I get to give out money. And so we're giving out to missions and locally and globally. And, and uh, I met with somebody in our city. I said, I just went into her office and I said, hey, uh, can I give you $5,000? But it has to go to ne- the needs in our community for the poorest of the poor and I want the city of Hillsborough to get credit for it. But you and I know somebody in my church gave it. I called a fire chaplain. I said, hey, Steve, can I give you $5,000? I, I did a ride-along not too long ago, eight hours with one of our fire guys, and it was a lot of fun, kind of crazy. And I saw them just love people in Jesus' name because we've got tons of firefighters, first responders that are Christians. I called our sheriff. Actually, I called his wife because that was easier to get in that way. And because uh, I know her, and I, I was in Cornelius in the Starbucks. I saw one of the, the, the guys there I've known for years, had dinner. He's not a Christian. He's now the chief. I went up and said, hey, Al, 
what could you guys do here for the city if you had $5,000? I'm like, I'm giving out money. It's all gone, by the way, just in case you're curious. <laughs> but it was awesome. I mean, I'm giving to missions. I'm giving to churches. I'm doing things like that. But I want our city to know that we're not just receiving, that we're blessing them. And the gospel is going out. Moving into mission took us out of our comfort zone. The very first thing my friends Chuck and Polly said to me when we started a recovery ministry, they said, you know, people aren't going to like the cigarette butts and the beer cans that show up around here. And I said, okay, what are we going to do about that? And we kept doing it, and we loved people. We started a Christian AA, Christian NA, recovery ministries in the name of Jesus. And um, you know what? We've had people leave. But we decided we're more concerned with who we're trying to reach than just entertaining a group of people that want to just come to church because we want to be the church. Two things we wrestle with, and there's a slide here that'll explain it. Um, it, These are things that we have to manage and we're never going to solve them, but it's the tension of being internally focused or externally focused. Um, When I came to Sunrise, we were internally focused. It took a lot to move them out, to move us out into the city, move us out in the community. And we were more concerned about not being the church that people would come to, but being the church that would go out in the community. And that was an externally focused plan. We, we staff, we pray, we budget, we calendar, we build with an external focus. And God blesses that. And more and more people come to the gospel because of that. Restoration and redemption. Um, I grew up in a church that was all redemption. And, and it... it People didn't come to Jesus. Very, very, very few. The baptismal was a storage place. And there are churches that are all, all about restoration, and they've lost the gospel. How do we wrestle with the pendulum swing of bringing it back into some middle ground? And it's a tension that I, as lead pastor, face because I'll go to people that are, you know, they want to throw the Bible at people. It's like, okay, that's not a good approach. Let's bring it back here, and let's, let's figure a way to love them. And I go to our, our, most of our ministries, food closet, things like that. They're just like, let's give them groceries. I go, stop. <laughs> let's pray with them. Let's share Jesus with them. And it's always this tension. Are we internally focused or externally focused? Are we focusing on redemption with this one? Are we focusing on restoration with that one? And as a leader, I had to work hard at making sure that we were wrestling constantly with it and not ever solving the problem, knowing that it'll be an ongoing issue. I want to close with this. Um, One of the more exciting things I ever got to do in my life, I was in high school. I just come to Christ in a church in Petaluma, California. There was this old guy at my church, Ian Dillingham, cool guy. And he had a sailboat, 27-foot Catalina, really nice. And the only problem was he was getting old. He had tunnel vision. And so he came up with a plan. He grabbed a couple young guys. He said, I'll teach you how to drive the van, pull the boat, set everything up. You do all the work, and I can ride in the sailboat. We're like, sign me up. That's awesome. So we got to sail, get to sail in San Francisco Bay as a teenager. It is scary in the San Francisco Bay. It's choppy. Got to sail in Bodega Bay on the coast, and I would pick us up, and we'd go. We'd set everything. We'd do everything, and he was like a kid just riding along. We go to Northern California lakes, and I learned to sail, and it was a lot of fun. And I'll never forget what Ian taught us. He goes, we don't make the wind, we ride the wind. And I think about this, how many churches you've been a part of, I've been a part of, they felt the wind of God's spirit move and blow. And so what do we do? We, we get in our sailboat, and we set our course. And we set our course, and we are just determined to ride that wind. 
We ride that wind and we ride that wind and it's a beautiful time. And then what always happens, happens. The wind shifts. And now we have a dilemma. Will we change course to match the wind? And sadly, most churches that I've been a part of have decided that the wind blew back in 1972 in that direction and we set our course and the wind stopped blowing in 1994 and so there's no wind, we're just going to wait it out. And young punk church planters come in and ride the wind and we're not happy. And so you know what we do as church leaders and church people? We do this. We get out our oars in a sailboat nonetheless and we start paddling. And we paddle, and we paddle, and we go, this is church. This is why Jesus died, right? And all the while, we're in a sailboat, for crying out loud. If we could just determine where the wind of the Spirit is blowing, and we could set the course as the Spirit wants, and we could be willing to move out of our comfort of what maybe worked but doesn't work anymore, so that we could ride the wind of the Spirit into whatever He wants for our church and our community. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love, we love comfort. That's just a fact. But Jesus left comfort to be on mission, to come and live and to die. This message of the gospel would, be, would go out into all the world. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts again to be honest about comfort and yet then to be honest about mission. And what would it look like for us to move and to lead out of uncomfortable situations at times, but situations nonetheless that are where your spirit's leading us. Father, may we be the people, the men and women that go back to our churches and, and we just test the wind. We put our finger up and we wonder, where's the wind blowing? What's the spirit of God doing in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our churches? And we find a way to, to harness the power of what your spirit is doing in a way that brings salvation to many more people. It's tiring, God, to row. It's embarrassing to be in a sailboat rowing. May we throw the oars away and jump back in and ride the wind. That would bring honor to you, we pray in your name. Amen.